Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Yeah, I you have like a Donald Sutherland thing going on right now. It, it's kind of like, yeah. uh, yes, yeah. You have like a Qui Gon Jinn meets Donald Sutherland. <laughs> yes. He had on a scarf earlier. People should know this. When we got on the call, Ben had on a scarf. So this is when the music comes in. You got to say and the music comes in. You got to say Thinking Basketball Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> My name's Kyle Mann. Thinking Basketball Podcast. I'm Kyle Mann. J. Kyle Mann, as people know me. Um, that's so informal. Here, here today, my guest is Benjamin Taylor, renowned cognitive behavioral scientist, um, expert, totally neutral center of the basketball internet, um, considered <laughs> to be one of, the, one of the brightest minds in analytics, in progressive thinking. Um, he also tends to ruin things for people when he thinks about them. <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> You landed right on it there. Uh, yeah. I like that. How you doing? That was pretty good. Thanks, man. I always uh I always laugh at your uh your intro, not like the quality of it. I always laugh at the song with the little Mario Kart that Yeah. Yeah. The uh Yes, you noticed that. Turtle shells. I mean, come yes. on, I'm a child of the nineties. Of course I noticed that. And I it's mean, by uh Young Carts. That's the artist. Yeah, I'm sure he's appreciating your sh- shout out. Yeah, yeah. So you can take the show from here since it's your show. Oh, yes, it's my show. Um, well, today, Jay Kyle Mann has been nice enough to join us. I took the, the wheel. The, <laughs> you, gra- you grab control. I Was that a Walton? Was a Walton going to come out already this early in the show? He can if you'd like him to, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here with Ben Taylor. The smartest mind in basketball. He, he's unrivaled. He knows more. He's forgotten more about basketball than I could ever know. Artis oh, Gilmore. That's, I, you, that, <laughs> I used that line in the uh, introduction to the Lakers podcast many years ago where Bill, Bill brought us in. John Wooden has forgotten more about basketball than I'll ever know. Um, you posted a video recently not on the Ringer YouTube channel, on your Twitter account, of you talking like Bill Walton. Was that in your backyard? Were you just out walking and t- talking like Bill Walton in your in your spare time? What I do is um, I often go in my backyard and just kind of pace around like, like, like a philosopher would, and uh, often <laughs> with my hands behind my back and a fisherman's cap. No, um, yeah, I, I saw... The, it was you and Trey Kirby, right? Had some conversation, and yeah, I was yeah. just, you know, in a in a playful mood, and I just uh, recorded that. But uh, I'm not a good Walton impersonator. I think I think impersonations you have to either be like dead on, or you have to be like a really cartoonish account of a person. You can't be like kind of close, you know. So I think I'm more cartoonish, you know. I don't know where would you? Well, say if you is, I think as long as you bring the fun to the game, um, that's most of what counts. So. I used to do a lot of impressions. Now I find myself forgetting the impressions that I used to do. Not necessarily how to do them, but like, oh, yes, I used to talk like that person for half a day on end. And now I completely forgot that person existed. Yeah, I do a lot of trying to annoy my wife. That's kind of one of the things that we do a lot (laughs) is I'll pick a voice. And if she hates it, um, you know, we do that. Uh, Generally, we just kind of play we have little games where we just try to see who can annoy the other person. Or if I like mention a song, she gets mad. She's like, don't sing that. And then I'll just kind of barely sing it mm. over the course of the day, you know, stuff like it. This explains a lot. Yeah. Marriage stuff, you know, so marital bliss. Yes. This always sure. happens when you come on. I, I, what are we talking about today? Basketball. We've got the greatest peak series, which reminded me of you, historical stuff. Um, your develop. I want to get into your developmental. What are we calling this? pyramid of development that you've come up with this triumvirate of innovation i don't know man i i think i, I kind of mentioned it into in the well i came up with it and i think we maybe talked about this last time i was here it, i got thinking about um 
you know, sort of what causes the because when you when you look at like modern players, often we'll be like, I, I remember there was some video somebody tweeted out not too long ago. They were like making fun of Bob Cousy, basically like talking about how he sucked. And I was like, that's just the most ridiculous. Like it, it'd be like going and saying, you know, like man, Carl Perkins, not as good as Eddie Van Halen. It's like so ridiculous to ignore the people who, you know, who were early on and sort of were pieces in the evolutionary chain of basketball. And I got thinking about like why that happens with Kareem specifically. And that got me thinking like, well, why, how, how do players develop in general? Like what are the, what are the pressurizing kind of factors that cause these things to come out at the end? Sometimes diamonds, sometimes just pebbles. So with LaMelo got me thinking about it. And I was just like, so, so for anybody that doesn't know in the three, it's three E's emulation, experimentation, education. That's kind of what I came down to. And I remember I pitched this to you and you told me that this, there, this was sort of like theory of learning, like in psychology, right? What, what was it you said to me that day? I, I have no recollection of what we talked about that day, but it, it, it has a lot of connections to how people are learning just in a generalized sense, right? Like outside of basketball, um, where the way we think people sort of develop these mental schema, which is one of the terms used around these kinds of things, is you can have observation, you can have emulation, it's people around you, but you also need a certain amount of experimentation. The raw material that you put together, if you will, leads to kind of new things that are emergent that we would think of as innovative, basically. So, um, yeah, I don't remember exactly what our conversation was when you pitched this idea to me, but I loved it because I think it is largely comprehensive and, I mean, just plugs into basketball culture and player development, like, immediately. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think it does. I mean, it's kind of, I have, as you know, I have a, uh, a five-month-old going on six-month-old, and I think a lot about, uh, it's kind of been informing the way I'm thinking about him as you watch him learn, and I'm just like, well, I definitely want him to have creative adaptability. Like, I want him to be able to, and I, I guess as you as you put young players in situations, there is sort of a balance of letting them sort of experiment and try and to like develop their vocabulary to handle certain problems or to have the audacity to say like I'm gonna I'm I'm just gonna be able to throw all these different approaches at this problem because I've seen so many different types of problems. So then you get you get feel, you get fluidity, you get somebody like you know, LaMelo Ball is sort of a malign player for some people. I feel like the tide has shifted a little bit of that because he's kind of proven himself to be, you know, not a phony. He's he's He can actually play. Um, but, you know, one thing that I think is unique about, and this could kind of segue to some of the stuff that you and I talk about a lot, uh, some of the conversations that tend to piss people off pretty royally, uh, <laughs> is uh, a comparison. Specialty. That came, yeah, is a comparison that came to mind for me. Uh, with Lamelo, um, and yeah, we talked about this a lot, but it got me thinking about throughout history, how many cases of players have we had? Now they're like coaches' son types all around the world that are like ho- like recklessly enabled by their fathers. I mean, and then there's also the opposite. You get like the Todd Marinovich types that like are uh, abusive, but there are a lot of like guys out there that are like, "Daddy's controlling my context." I guess that was creepy saying daddy daddy's always creepy never say daddy so but daddy's controlling it uh so <laughs> no but here here he goes it's like robin williams taking over now yeah yeah so but no like and they get over enabled in a way that's destructive but the ball brothers are just interesting in that they were put in these situations to play fast possessions weren't like over scrutinized in terms of because uh, if you go back and watch chino hills you've watched them i assume um oh they were enabled. Very little. Okay. Well, they were very able- little. I, I think I've seen um, some of Lonzo a couple years ago, and then Lame- did Lamelo play there when he was oh, young yes. as well? Yeah, yeah. So I've seen, but very little. It's not like I'm sitting here studying Chino Chino Hills film tape like you are. There's, you know, it's not really a pleasure to to study. I'll be honest. Uh, it really is almost. It just looks like a three on two, two on one drill that just goes on for a whole game. Basically, that's the way they play. They're just like, okay, score outlet. Like it, they play super fast. But that's one of the reasons that 
they were playing so fast and experimenting that they developed some the feel because Lonzo and Lamelo mm. both have terrific feel for the game. Mm. Yeah, uh, which is just familiar familiarity with problem solving. So that got me thinking about that, and then I started thinking about uh, comparing players throughout history who had been similar, and one player came to mind. Um, and pray tell who was said player, Pete Maravich. Very similar player, like in terms of like what they went through. His dad, Press Maravich, was a college coach, um, put him in a position to play and learn, and then it's just like uh, they both had a similar thing. Now, people started quibbling with me about like, how dare you, um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, and I, and I want to, yeah. Well, before we get into that, his dad's name was Press? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that happens. Wow. Does he have a brother named Half Court Maravich by any chance? Uh, yeah, he has. Uh, yeah, two two one. Uh, <laughs> their their dog's name is Junk. Uh, and okay, okay. So what happened? Um, you made a comparison to you had Lamelo and Pistol Pete. And do you want to get into that, or was there more? To well, no. Yeah, going? there's more to it. I just want to address the people that got annoyed by that. Now, l- just listen to me for a second. What I'm doing is comparing. <laughs> Uh, Pete, now we we have this obsession with comps where we're just like one to one. That's how comps work, dang it! And that's not like that doesn't always work. It's really not helpful. So I think I think players are complex things, which is why I can't. Why, it's why I made up the comp cloud on my old site, the Dime Drop, to begin with, because I would be like elements of these players are here, and I would try to right, make it right, big right. to represent that. But with Maravich, I just think their development, how they got from point A to point B, not necessarily what happened from point A to point B in terms of results, because. You can't compare the results. I had people that were like, he scored 4,000 points. I'm like, A, LaMelo hasn't played college, so how could you compare how many points they've scored in college? It's just throw that out. Don't mention that to me anymore. And um, that's where I went. So you're, you're, you're all riled up about this. I love it. Yeah, so, so I kind of uh, I got people going about that. So that was uh, – but, but overall, yes, that's a way that I've started looking at players uh, and their development. It, it interests me immensely. Well, let me just stick with that um, – comparison thing for a second because i think a lot of people take the comparison thing extremely literally in their mind and and we've talked about this before because i've done it with players like the first time i really noticed it was Giannis, who i think in the video i the first video profile i did on him last year i called him the new shack because to me in today's game now he's the guy who uses his physical tools to dominate at the rim in a way that other players can't. It's stride length combined with some like sinewy strength and his long reach and some dexterity, whereas Shaq was like angular power and explosiveness and size. And of course, the whole point there is not to say basketball in 2000 is like basketball in 2020. It's to say they were very different, but there's some functional through line that's giving these guys an advantage that no one else seems to have. And man, Kyle, you'd be amazed at how many people told me Giannis weighs 100 pounds less than Shaq. I never knew that until they told me that. Yeah, it's always good to have the fact checkers jump in like that. No, it's it's difficult, and I, but I think that uh, it's always difficult getting fact checked, man. I just I avoid it. Um, anyway, but me too. <laughs> no, yeah, I think you're right. And I think that Giannis is interesting and in just like how many – how many players are going right now that are and how wide do you think the window is for a player to be purely physically dominant today in that sense like um you know Shaq towards the end of his career was still fairly effective I was watching some of his Cleveland tape from like 2009 and it was just like whoa he was so big um he was you know he was playable not dominant but still he was out there basically is what I'm saying there was you know, for me, it's funny. I just recently went from Shaq's peak for the series. And then in looking at other players, I'm not going to say who to tease anyone, but I may have landed on a Cleveland game that you referenced nine or 10 years later. Mm. And what really stood out to me is the the loss in that athletic advantage and how he's just so big still and so kind of ahead of the curve as an athlete that even as like a laboring 35 year old he can still kind of do some things Mm -hmm. but at the same time it exposes some of the limitations in his game because when you take away the fastball when you take away all of his superhero powers you're left with to some people i think what is a a facade or a mirage of 
impact where it's like, oh, hey, look at Shaq when he played in Cleveland or Phoenix. He still averaged like 17 points a game. And it's like, yeah, but the way he got the points was different and everything else was worse and defenses didn't have to pay as much attention to him and on and on and on. And so it's not like he's 75% of what he was in 2002. It's like he's 5% of it or something. Five, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, five. He's well, I could, you could go negative. He looks well. We do have stats for that. Yeah, uh, he he's like a planet out there. He literally looks like a moving <laughs> planet. And players are yeah. I, and but I was gonna say in terms of like physical dominance, I, I can only think of like players that dominate in that fashion. I mean, the, Giannis and I mean Zion in terms of I mean there are other guys that do physically dominate, but I mean just in terms of like raw force and agility. Can you stop me from getting to the end point? Um. Who, who else would you say is even in that conversation? Who are the most physically dominant players in that fashion if you translated the way Shaq was dominant to today? Because you talked about it. It's different. I mean, in the yeah. ways that it's... Yeah. Barkley had uh, sort of a similar quality. Um, I think he went about it differently. I don't want to... The Shaq video isn't out yet, so I don't want to tease too much of it. But I think there is something about Shaq's success that is kind of historically understated. And I don't know if Barkley had that exact same approach, right? Mm -hmm. But power-wise, like just the physical tools, the explosiveness around the basket. I mean, I always think of Zion and Barkley as sort of closer comps historically, or at least in theory. And there aren't too many other guys at that level, right, who are just plowing through the league with some powerful athletic edge like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. Hey, I watched your, uh, <laughs> it's amazing. You know what the great thing about the video call is? We talked about this. It's, uh, we've eliminated the, are you still there <laughs> moments that we used to have during podcasts. Well, one of us wanted to eliminate those moments. The other relished them. Well, I would get texts from people that would just say they were like laughing their asses off at that. They're like, uh, are you still there? <laughs> um, I watched your uh, I watched your two latest. Well, I watched the one that's not technically out yet. Your peak your peak videos. It'll 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 be out when this is dropped. Okay. Yeah, we should be we should be right in line with the release. So you you have seen up through episode five, which is Magic Johnson. We actually haven't talked about this because you watched them last night and this morning. Yeah, I did. It's been um, it's. If you ever have a child, Ben, you're going to see, um, I underestimated this, you know, uh, it gets harder to do anything, you know, in terms, in, in one sitting, uh, I, in work, um, I also was, Meg and I were laughing last night cause we sat down to watch that show industry and we were like, finally finished, finally finished, uh, an episode. And, uh, she was like, man, I feel like we were watching that forever. It was like, yes, we watched one episode for five nights. That's kind of what you end up in. So, but no, I watched Watch Magic last night. Watch Bird this morning. Um, two guys that are interesting in through the prism of what we were talking about before in terms of developmental, right? Pyramid. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and I mean that's where I thought of you, especially for those early players, because it seemed to me in going through the history that I'm not going to hard date it at like 1997 or 2002 or something like that, but at a certain point. The innovation and the differences in style across star players seems to get flattened more over time. And I think that's a natural thing, and we can talk more about that. But I really wanted to hear your thoughts about sort of some of these earlier guys where players like Magic and Bird come along and they clearly have a profound impact on the sport crossing over, blowing up the culture, everything. And yet they both in their own way were very unique players, both historically and but especially at the time, just in terms of how they approached it, how they thought about it, how they did it. And it got me thinking how many players who come along today are doing things in a creative or different way versus this sort of like flattening of innovation where all the top players are kind of piggybacking on the same ideas. What, what do you think about this as you look at prospects? I mean, one of the things that jumped out to me about 
your LaMelo video. He's such a unique player, probably for better and worse in the long run. But we don't see that I can think of too many really unique players coming along anymore compared to like the guys who broke through in the 70s and 80s. Well, I guess some of that is is a phenomenon of us just having uh, less information and sort of figuring it out. You know, as we've gone over time, I think there's just sort of this, uh, I'm doing this with my hands, these, like this, these converging points that have made the window for what is functional within a game, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, possible. Like, so I think that the experimentation has just sort of been kind of choked out of the game in terms of, uh, if you think about like jump shots, like a guy like Jamal Wills, right? I mean, yep, you're just that's not what gonna, I was thinking of. You're not going to see as many oddities like that anymore, um, and it, because those things get kind of ridiculed. You, I, w- I was watching just well. One, of the, uh, I want to say this, and then I want to come back to another point. So, uh, Bird's jump shot. I was watching that. This is something interesting that I've kind of been thinking about a lot. Now, Bird had a distinctly two motion jump shot for people I, the 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 nerds of the nerds that listen to you the smart people they know what i'm talking about when i say that some people might not so we talk about like motions in a jump shot steph curry has a one motion jump shot he pit, he catches it it's up it's you know it like it goes fluidly through his body energy transfers from his toes to the tips of his fingers when he lets go of the ball and he shoots it and he's really accurate that's not entirely common um Bird is the other end of the spectrum. He has a distinctly two-motion shot, a trebuchet. He loads it up, it comes behind his head, and then he shoots it. It's two motions. Some people are in between. We call it like a 1.5. Um, there's another guy. This doesn't happen very much in, in basketball at the highest levels anymore. There's another guy who shoots like this, and I don't know if you've seen him. Have you seen Matthew Hurt for Duke? Have you ever seen this guy? No. Same deal. He he. It's it's incredible, actually. I, w- I was talking with somebody about this the other night, and he's a good player. Like he might end up in the league, and it works for him. But he has some physical limitations. Shoots it way back behind his head, like KD. But it's much more deliberately two motions. Um, but yeah, that stuff just kind of been kind of funneled out of the game. I feel like. Yeah. So you don't think there are many two motion jumpers anymore, just because? <laughs> what are those pauses? <laughs> There it is, the pauses. Yes. Okay, we Am got I him back there? just in another form. <laughs> no, I don't think that that it's as common. And we talked about this a lot. That like you know, there's a homogenization of basketball at the highest level, a homogenization of thinking, so it gets harder to be more creative. You, it's just it's harder. So and the data is informing a lot of that, as you know. Um, like I, I said, I, I talked about like there was, and it's getting to the point too where the things that are homogenized are so common that players are being taught to counter them like the like the euro step used to be a devastating counter in transition finishing at the rim in the middle players are instinctively cutting off the euro step i see this all the time and i even t- yes. i even heard rod strickland and god shame god talking about this on a talk where they were like you know the players are being taught to do this so there's going to be counter to counter to counter to counter it's just going to keep going um why would anyone listen to such historically poor ball handlers with no <laughs> yes. creativity in their game whatsoever? Um, yeah, this lands me on a, like a side point that I noticed about um, defending to take a charge or to take an offensive foul. There's a game, and there's no way I could pinpoint which game it was, but it might be, I want to say later than 2000, and the Lakers were already rolling, so like 2001 or 2002. Mm-hmm. And it's an NBA on NBC game. And Shaq is just tearing up whoever they're playing. And someone on the call, whoever it is, might be Mike Breen at that point in time, says something like, Bill, what can you know the opposing team do here to slow down Shaq? And Walton said something that I think was supposed to be like vintage Walton humor. But in retrospect, I can't stop thinking about it. He said, other than learn how to flop... And it's like, I started paying more attention. No one in that era, like no one in basketball history until very recently thought a way to defend power was to hold your position, say in the post, for example, right? Hold your position, stand up kind of straight or in your 
bent knee athletic stance, and when you get touched, launch yourself backwards and say, that's the end of the play. You either call an offensive foul or people are going to complain about me flopping. And we don't even really, this is like a, a frog in boiling water moment for me because I don't even think we realize that players do this and I'm not putting a judgment on it at all. We can have that conversation. But at some point in the last 20 years, it went from a thing that no one did at all, even against the most dominant force ever in like Shaq. They mm-hmm. still tried to hold their body as firmly as humanly possible against his strength. And now it almost doesn't matter. Kyle Lowry could post you up and one of your key defensive counters is going to be, well, I'm going to hold my position. And if he bangs into me, I'm going to fall down and that'll be the end of the play. Yeah, I guess it's all kind of just a an evolutionary. It's an, like sort of ties into that like eleva- evolution of tactical kind of conversation where something starts out when you have such an overwhelming force um you know you could see this in like i mean i'm not like a military tactical type of a person but when one side has such an overwhelming advantage you can't approach it it's just like if if alabama has the power to run the ball down your throat forever you know you got to find a way to don draper style change the conversation and that's what teams started to do with Shaq. it was just like there he got to be such a behemoth that even like former defensive players of the year, he could just drop step and go through their chest and dunk on them. I remember there was a clip of uh, Matumbo where Dikembe, he just like, yep. absolutely it's in, it's, yeah, it's in my video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like... He lifts them off the ground, basically, with what just kind of looks like him leaning forward naturally at an angle as he starts his dribble. He just completely lifts Dikembe off the ground. But that's what I'm saying. He, back when he played... No one thought the count, maybe outside of Vladi Divac a few times, like no one thought the counter was to quote unquote flop. And now what's happened is the flop is not viewed as a flop anymore. We still have flops on other plays. But if you're in the post and you hold your position and someone basically forcefully bangs into you in any manner whatsoever, you're, I would guess, at all levels taught to fall down and backwards now. And that's kind of the polarization of that play. It's either an offensive foul or play on and you get the layup. It's taught. I mean, college, I've, I've watched a high major program teach their players to do this. I, people could probably figure out which one. And I would say Louisville. Yes, the Louisville Cardinals. They're the ones. Uh, it, it is just interesting how something starts. It's the gimmick gospel thing that I talk about all the time, but it just kind of runs rampant until we find a way to – and. It, I find it interesting that we always assume that things evolve towards a perfect state, um, you know, because we always just assume, well, you know, basketball is heading towards um, a more refined thing because that's what happens in other areas of life. You know, uh, something is perfected and over time, but basketball has interesting challenges ahead, you know, in terms of I, I absolutely detest what what it is and what it is in. Well, people just game the system. I mean, like even some of the best players do it. I'd never had that instinct in me to sell a flop when I was playing. I'm not judging other people. I wasn't that great a player. But, um, you know, if you watch college basketball, it's not a basketball play. Like like Duke was playing, and I'm not trying to pick on Duke, I, although I love to pick on Duke. Uh, the other night, uh, <laughs> somebody was – So I think it was somebody for uh, Illinois was driving, and uh, Joey Baker slid under him at the last second. You know, And this is just a representation of this thing that's just gotten totally out of control. And I think that three-pointers are a similar kind of a thing. You know, it was the sort of Promethean fire from the gods for us to be like, hey, you know what? The playing field is more leveled now because the Giants can't dominate the landscape like they used to. Well, now we've expanded it to the point where we're just like, okay, the numbers are telling us that you should only shoot threes. Hey, big shock. uh, Big shock. Three is worth more than two. You should do that as many times as you possibly can within a game and get really good at it. And skill development has helped on that level too. But I don't know. I think basketball is in an interesting place where – you know, I think Baylor shot 53s in a game the other day, in a college game. You know, so it's like, where do we go? I'd be interested to ask you. I mean, what, what, where are we going from here in terms of the charges, in terms of the unique problems ahead? I, I don't know. I think they do need to fix the charge. I have been sold on that for years, that they need to pull that charge circle out a few more feet. And the play example that you just cited, where you're undercutting somebody, um, I think they've opened a Pandora's box with the whole 
landing space flagrant foul thing. And it is extremely asymmetric as of right now, where if you are a jump shooter in certain situations, you're protected when you jump and then come back down. But if you're a defender or a big man in the lane or driving into the lane or whatever, it's kind of the opposite. It's like um, it's, it's a free for all. And mm-hmm. it's like a tr- it feels like a, a pile up on the freeway sometime. And somehow this is all OK. Somehow it's not even a personal foul half the time. And yet the other play is flagrant with the uh, you know original intent to protect player safety. And so I do think there's something that kind of has to be fixed there or the pendulum swings too far. And let me add one more point before I throw that back to you. I can't stop thinking about how this affects the efficiency of post plays where coaches and teams now have all this data and realize, you know, maybe playing through the post has never been the greatest idea, but is it out of balance now because of all these rules where like to me, the league with how small it is and the skill of Joel Embiid, he should be essentially what we think of as unstoppable in the post. And he's Mm -hmm. kind of like only close to that. And I think a lot of it has to do with if he gets switched on to a small guy, they just flop and take a charge. And that's like, however many times it actually works, it's effectively better than trying to defend him straight up. Yeah. And, and I guess you have to kind of measure what we were, what I was saying before about like, is it, do we want to have a world where teams have no response to a Shaq or a Joel Embiid? Like it is good to have a balance. It's, it's very tricky to thread the needle because you know, some of this too is just that it's, it's not safe. Some of these plays just flat out aren't safe. Sneaking up behind somebody in transition when they turn around, like they don't know you're there. You wouldn't think to do that, like, naturally, like, unless you had a, a nefarious, <laughs> I'm calling it nefarious because I can't stand it, but if you sneak up behind somebody that just caught the ball, they turn, you're literally right right in front of their face. I mean, I've seen, it's dangerous. That's another thing that I would talk right. about is that, like, right. these aren't, if, and anybody that's so, played basketball a lot, last point I want to make on this, the, the, anybody that's played basketball a lot, you know that the most dangerous times in terms of, like, somebody could get hurt is when somebody is out there that doesn't understand the natural sort of dance of basketball and you get a feel for those things over the year over the years if if you play and i found that i'm more likely i feel like i'm more likely to get injured if i'm playing with some people who don't have experience playing cuz they'll be somewhere where you don't expect it oh yeah um, so when these guys are doing things like when a when a guy for duke slides under somebody who is shooting like that um that's my biggest takeaway is it's just like it hurts it hurts the integrity of the, of the game in my opinion but it's also just dangerous like I, I think we're I don't know I, I would just hate to see I, I, Jalen Suggs almost a guy playing for Gonzaga who's going to be in the 2021 draft most likely really good player um, he it looked like he got really injured because somebody was trying to do this to him um, so I, I just find it to be a really pressing issue um, can we go back to the uh, bird magic thing yeah yeah please yeah let's um, so, so you were talking about how they were unique, uh, and had a huge impact. So, you know, in the eighties, a lot of people know this, not every game was even on TV. Like the tele, the televisation was, was much lower back in the day. We know this as two people. Right. We had just to level set for everyone listening. We had the finals and playoff games tape delayed in the seventies. And I think into the very early eighties before kind of the boom and the explosion, and I think the other big point there is like some teams were just in the dark. I talked about this on a recent podcast where the award ballots were like just distributed to all the local teams. Like in 1983 or four, there were 19 first place recipients of defensive player of the year votes. And it's like, that's because no one watches Utah. They're never on TV. Indiana's never on TV. And you go through the league and it was just something where there was less visibility, basically. Totally. Yeah. So, the, you know, and the, and the league levels up when two really special players. Now, I forget who influenced Bird and Magic. Do you know that off the top of your head, who who the direct influences for them were? Uh, I don't know that I'm comfortable sort of J. Kyle Mann style saying, like, here's the lineage of their influence. Because two quick things, you know, some it, we, you and I talk about this all the time in our process, because there's all these things that never make the videos where you know as you go through it you're like oh, i i 
I don't want to cut anything, but you have to you have to cut stuff out. With magic, I was trying to figure out where that I'd never done it before this pass through history, where his like idea to be a ball handler and sort of lead guard came from as he continued to grow. Because he was tall when he was young. This is not like an Anthony Davis, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, late growth spurt case in his, in his instance. He was tall. And the only thing I really came up with is he loved touching and dribbling a ball when he was a little kid. And he claims he used to dri- carry one with him and dribble it to school and back. So the other, you know, other kids couldn't take it or he wouldn't lose it. He got really confident handling it like that. And I think that just never stopped in his mentality as he got to whatever it whatever it is, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, ten by the time he was obviously tenth, eleventh grade, he was an incredible player. And he played like that, and he played like that all the way through. So I'll stop there because I've been talking a while, but that was the closest I could find versus him I love being it. No. Yeah. right versus him being influenced by a particular player. Totally. Yeah, because I guess there weren't I, I would be interested to know if there were any sort of templates for him back then because you know pushing it in transition at that size something that really jumped out to me when I was watching your video which these videos are fantastic I'm not saying that just because we're friends these are really really if I told Ben he should have called this series nerd candy or candy for nerds I don't know (laughs) uh, or nose candy for basketball fans it's like the d- the level of detail in this, I don't think I've ever seen another YouTuber, and I'm r- I'm really not trying to kiss up to him. It's r- these are really really good. I would I would recommend and and pay for his Patreon. I appreciate so, that. So with uh, specifically with magic, something that jumped out to me, you start to think about like why it's so effective. I think one one big thing with him and and a guy like you know Giannis is sort of like a further endpoint of this too. It's just like big mobile guy that can really push it in transition. Um, yes. Magic at the time, because the game hadn't evolved, and I don't know how much I'd thought about this prior, the game hadn't evolved to the point where, you know, 6'9", 6'10", and up guys were lighter and can really, you know, that sort of lower body flexibility hadn't sort of entered the game to the extent that it has now, where it's pretty critical to have now, even for your bigger guys. You need to be, you need to be laterally agile. So... You've got those guys out there. They're they are so preoccupied. So you have this juxtaposition of the preoccupation of I've never seen a six nine guy that can dribble like this guy can. He is intentionally getting the ball off the rim and a good defensive player. He's getting off the ball off the rim and pushing it. The 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 guards and the wings can't get to him because he's so physically. He's just gonna. He knows how to protect the ball, like you were talking about. I'm sure that was something that was honed in his time dribbling when he was growing up. But you get so preoccupied with you know your your bandwidth, your CPU usage as a player. I have to get in front of this guy and stop this simple thing from happening. Him getting to the rim, that's going to be hard to stop in and of itself. So you have that terror juxtaposed against. A really good decision maker and a guy that is as I talk a lot about like live dribble passing, which is something that um, the people that watch my videos, I'm sure they get sick of me just hammering these same terminology over and over again. But no, never. The reason that's important is because when you watch guys that and you can still see it, I see it in some of the wings of this 2021 class is like guys that have grown up with the ball in their hands. They don't always develop that ability to let offense flow through them because when the ball comes to them. They're so used to, I'm the last decision in this sequence. Whereas Magic clearly had this, this I don't know how it happened, or like I don't know if he had brothers or where he played growing up, but he developed this ability to be this like relentless downhill terror and be a fantastic decision maker on the move. So you just combine those two things, you're just, when you're in that state of terror of trying to stop him, you're also not in a position to be able to anticipate his quality of decisions. So I, when I was watching him just like move, uh, you know, it's just like, uh, I don't know. I just, I just think a lot about that, uh, about like defensive and offensive bandwidth is what I call it. Like your ability to, you know, survey well, he the was, game. Right. No, I think he was off on offense. He was off the charts there. Um, I mean, it's an understatement to call him a fantastic decision maker. I think in many respects, he's a candidate for the all time greatest decision maker and of course this specific thing you're alluding to is speed and you know i've come up with the 
five tools of passing and accuracy and manipulation and all these things that I think we layer on to great passers and what makes them effective. And you go back to what you said about live ball dribble passing. It's one thing to make like be able to literally throw certain passes. It's another thing to uncork them in the flow of your attack. Exactly. And so in his case, in his case, especially in transition, if you made a choice to try to take away one of his scoring elements or that downhill charge as he comes to the rim, I mean, there are clips in there. And of course, you can go watch Magic Johnson passing highlights. That's not the purpose of the video. But I mean, he gets the ball out at just about every angle you could think to get the ball out in those situations. And that is that kind of decision making, that kind of high speed pick your poison, as I call it in the video, right? It's like, that is just devastating to handle. And especially in an era where if you're small, you're in trouble. And if you're big, you're just thinking, I, man, I got to get back. I got I got to run back and get in place. <laughs> yes, yes. Just the, the overall dread of like, I got to get back, especially in the time frame. You know, if Magic played today, as he is, hard to know how more or less effective he is. If you put that kind of decision-making talent, I'm sure he'd be very... Has anybody ever been more effective at like the live dribble power transition bounce pass than magic who's who's on his level in terms you know i'm talking about the just like thor's hammer transition bounce pass that he throws where he's like boom like it's you know he would be the yeah he would be the guy i'd think of yeah um i actually think this is an interesting kind of conversation we don't have to have it now because i want to go to bird but i mean there are very few players ever who i think are also in that candidacy list candidacy list for best live dribble fast action decision makers and the one that i constantly think of is nash oh and just i I, he so many things about guys like nash are understated and not oh he won these mvps and d'antoni and whatever right but it's like there's so much going on there under the hood and when you start stacking this up historically you go oh okay i get it now like it's coming out of his ear at every angle and it's relentless yeah, totally. And and something else that I've noticed that Bird and Magic and Steve Nash have in common too is like the window of how much they can improvise up until the moment that a play like they can they can improvise at the very last second and make a quality decision. So like and that's just the speed of 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 rhythm of reps of stuff. Like if you watch another guy that has this quality and I I got on this kick of late at night just because I have this curse. It is a curse where late at night, even if I'm not working, I'm just like, I want to go watch this guy play from like 20 years. So I was, I think it was on election night. I was just like, I know everybody's kind of in a dour mood right now. I'm going to, let's post some Milos Teodosic clips. He's absolutely yes. somebody that could do that too. You'll watch him drive and he'll get to the end of a, of a drive. And it's amazing that people don't learn because you're just like, this guy's not a hyper athlete. He's not a big time finisher. I don't know why they're selling out to stop this. And at the very last split second, he would hit a cutter and the people that play with him, that's another impact ripple effect of players like this. It's just that like people that play with him move into the last moment. If you watch guys, because they know so, and, and he would just hit somebody with a player that didn't even know they were open. And that's another thing about like bird had that quality too. You know, even if it was what I love about Bird is that he was just sort of the through conduit of, and you pointed this out, he would be playmaking before the play even happened. Like he would be, he would just be like his, his field of vision would be like, okay, this is XYZ. This could happen if I catch the ball right here. And then when he catches it, he's like, boom, he makes the play. Um, that, that is, uh, one of my favorite things about watching Bird for sure. Yeah. No, he was a basketball genius. And I think, you know, you asked about, influence bird seems to be what i would describe as a savant just the way he played the way he approached if you know uh some of his history and things about going to indiana and then coming home and then um i think in her book um jackie mack talks about like you know he's playing he's taking out the trash and then playing in like men's leagues and there just seems to be no evidence that he changes his approach to the game at any age or at any point and yet he's always got this thing, whether it's the Team USA scrimmages in 78, where he and Magic were teammates, by the way, whether it's at Indiana State and his run through college, whether it's his rookie year at the Celtics, whether it's his peak in the middle of the 80s, whatever it is, he has this quality 
that you're describing where he just sees the game differently and he's kind of a step ahead. He's got this permanent mental image of the court, apparently, and is Mm -hmm. constantly thinking about how to make plays with his body, with the ball, with his teammates. Um, You know, I, I chose to focus in on that steal against Isaiah Thomas like the steal itself is an incredible steal oh, but yeah. one of the things I, I think I alluded to it in the video is Bird's thinking about the steal before the official gives Isaiah Thomas the ball and yeah. then to go then to flow from that into an insane pass in that moment with four seconds left and to your point the ripple effects of playing with someone like that is you start to try even if you're not as gifted you start to try to go, oh, I'm standing over here. What does Larry think I could do? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll cut to the hoop. Maybe he'll hit me. Yeah. Well, some of that is just basic incentivization and like uh, being conditioned to be like, I know that if this happens, this will happen. So if you get rewarded in that way, and if you stop getting rewarded in that way, right. you're just going to stop moving. If you watch, you know, not to go back to him, but Westbrook is that type of guy. I'm not going to go there. We're going to stop. So, um, but yeah, like no two plays if he if he'd hit a sweet jumper i guess on that play those those two plays really summed him up really well and something about larry bird i used to have this uh my dad had this biography of him called larry legend have you read that one i don't think so i I think i I know it i haven't read it i read it like 10 times when i was growing up and uh but i remember one of the things was uh he grew up in it and in like an impoverished area. And I remember they would just talk about, he would play with like grown men, like it, like on their lunch breaks and stuff out on the court. So I think he just kind of developed a, like a wide kind of vocabulary of just tricks and things like that. And it just seems like those, that type of skill, that sort of like encountering problem solving and just to adapt quickly. Um, it just, uh, like you were saying, I'd assume a photographic memory, I would assume, with bird i don't know if that's a safe thing to assume but it seems like it i don't know yeah oh he's got something going on up there that's that's very unique um i i do see them as kind of the different sides of the same coin where magic is doing this on the ball sort of quarterbacking as you would think of as a starting point pushing everything forward and bird is doing way more off the ball with his body, quick catches, cuts, all these like tricks. And he's kind of going around like an end, like he can be the optimal end point in the system wherever he kind of floats himself to on the court. And that end point doesn't have to be a shot for him, right? It could be the extra pass for the layup or the shot. But to me, they were, they, they both had this genius. And I think this gets back to how we got on this in the first place, which is this was new. This was innovative. This was a combination of flair and passing and sort of egalitarian team creativity that just resonated with people. It popped. And yet, I think, especially in the case of Bird, he seems still like one of a kind in history. They're just, um, you know, my wife, who isn't, doesn't watch a lot of basketball, but she's been watching the, the series as it's released. And she's like, boy, no one plays like Larry Bird. I'm like, yeah, she's like, I yeah. need to see more players that play like Larry Bird. I'm like, well, <laughs> it's a simple here's another, idea. And here's another Larry Bird video. No, yeah, it's totally, it's totally true, and it's a fascinating thing because we uh, something that really has come up a lot lately in basketball. I feel like is these we've talked a lot about like heliocentric offenses that are driven by like one person and sort of a natural next step for a lot of these teams that are trying to get that person. They're trying to get a Luca. They're trying to get a Harden. They're trying to get a Giannis. Uh, they're trying, you know, on and on is getting a secondary playmaker is something that you hear a lot of people talk about. And it's interesting to me that through the prism of the way we see basketball today, one of the best playmakers, you could quibble over what playmaker actually means, but play uh, Caesars, like (laughs) he just, he is opportunistic in, in exploiting what is there. Um, But Bird also had, um, it's interesting to me that he would sort of fit an idea of like what a secondary playmaker would be someone that could, you know, also complement a really primary source of offense, but he himself was a, was a primary source of offense, but something, another quality that bird had that, you know, Nash is they had this sort of what I call like a crowbar ability, which is when they catch it, even if there isn't an immediate, you know, opportunity there, they have the presence of mind to kind of crowbar the window open. That's why I started calling it that. It's like the one thing that'll make them move. And that's sort of like 
and advanced kind of playmaking quality, uh, in my opinion. Two other things. Um, the second thing is from that uh, that Larry Bird book too. That is sort of like hilarious to me in terms of like Red Auerbach. You posted that picture of his finger in the video of his broken finger, and it got me thinking about how funny draft recon uh, like reconnaissance is today as opposed to back then because they tell the story that like bird was in a gym and he was like uh let me see your finger like <laughs> Albrecht was just like threw him the ball that was the extent of the research they were like he's fine but like, we're good <laughs> it's just like i love red Albrecht. but um yeah the evolution of the nba you have these two interesting unique guys that that approach the game in a different way that's radically different like you were talking about it popped people loved it people want to watch it sends the nba into a tizzy relative to now but um i keep holding this usb cable out really i was going to ask you what that is it's a little short i keep fiddling with it um but it didn't have the the direct emulation emulative effect that you would expect and maybe that's a case of those two guys just being you know exceptionally exceptional uh, but you don't have direct carbon copies, and I wonder if that has something to do, like on a marketing level, the NBA exploded, you know, in the mid '80s. Big reason that you know that started with sort of like the Ke- the Keds basketball, and then it went to Converse, Converse weapon, things like that. Nike is starting to get more into basketball and taking it seriously, but then Nike absolutely explodes with this marketing person, yeah, yeah, Michael Jordan. Do you think that that had any? effect is there a relationship there between you know because birds are sort of like basketball guys that's like your dad was like nobody was better than larry bird but kids were very much like and they're very different at the time they were kind of different approach wise even though jordan was a good passer do you see the dynamic there what do you think about that? yeah no i i I mean i have heard elder statesmen say this to me that jordan you know it's hard for people our age who came up at the height of jordan to understand the impact of the Jordan marketing arm, right? Like, yes, of course, there's undeniable greatness and impact and all this, all the stuff that doesn't even need to be said about him. It's self-evident at this point. But the way we think about the game and then specifically to this idea of archetypes, emulation, evolution, I do think that he sort of drowned out what Larry and Magic had had shaped in maybe the first half of the decade or the first seven or eight years of the decade and when you get to the late 80s and you're already a couple years into the dunk contest and the, it's got you know um the shoe commercials and the fines and the where what are we on jordan four or five at that point mm-hmm. there was there was this sort of um groundswell of you know the whole be like mike uh his athleticism from an aesthetic standpoint, <laughs> the campaign right. was literally be like Mike. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like yes. On the notes. Yeah. That was the campaign. Um, and, and yeah. I think many people took that literally, they, you know, they had this idea that they're putting in your head of if you're a kid, go out on the court and try to play exactly like Michael Jordan. And as we've talked about before, a whole generation of people seem to do that. And so you got all of these guys coming up. It's not just, the romanticization of the six five athletic wing it's literally the way they're entering their jumper and thinking about how you score and how you're supposed to play and taking killer shots and on and on and on and i do think there's a lot especially with the bulls winning championships and that's why one of my favorite what ifs ever is what if there's no scotty pippen i think that drowns out sort of any cultural residence that magic and bird might have built up that is absolutely fascinating to me because you're it it is really wild that that you just you have to account for the marketing part of it like the power of it because the narrative machine behind Jordan you know we could get off on Jordan all day not don't take that out of context but you know we could get on that subject all day and i th- i think that like um yeah it, this ties in also with some of the you know, we laughed the other day about that tweet about like how bad Stan culture has been for basketball. Like how how much, and I think the marketing machine is part of that. Also ties into this idea of you know I know you've had a lot of conversations about Wilt Chamberlain is one of the most controversial people because people see raw points and things. And it's like when we got to, and maybe even before Magic and Bird, the thinking might have been this way, which is this idea of the ball's in my hands. 
the measure of my medal as a basketball player is my ability to overcome the defense and and I, I, there are probably some broader sort of like capitalistic things I think you could probably take from this. It's just like my ability to churn butter is my my measure here, not my ability to really grease the the wheel of this this system that I work in, which is sort of the thing that Magic and Bird did. It they definitely were not like I pounded out top, I score or the lesser thing. And then Jordan comes in and, 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 you know, like we said, Jordan learned to play within a system, but still it was very ISO dominant, but I'm getting to the point now and agree or disagree with this, where you get somebody like a Luca LeBron is, is probably one of the best examples of, of a good outcome of this, of, of a good kind of marrying of these two things kind of working together. These two, you know, narratives of basketball growth. Luca is sort of somewhere in between because he's somebody that like has the ball in his hands constantly and pounds it out top and he's a great passer, he's a great sharer, but he's different in magic than magic and bird in the fact that uh you know it starts it's it's not the same type of thing. Do you do you think that's true or, or not true? What do you think about that? Yeah, I no, I think you're onto something. I mean, it's of course there's a tension that I think has existed for a while in the sport between these sort of team level cooperative egalitarian approach which was really um heavily dominant for a while in the mid 70s and 80s through magic and bird and some of that had to do with the economics of the game and team construction and things like that this is this is also i think something that can be left out of the conversation expansion made it harder to have a lot of talent on a team and so what happened is this sort of emergence and romanticization. Have I botched that word twice in this podcast? Romanitization? Um, Romanitization, yeah. Did you, did you, did you. Ah, yeah. This is, anyway, um, there's sort of a celebration or an embracing of this, and it becomes more natural to need these kind of individualistic floor raisers when you've got 30 teams spread out and not as many good players. And so... I do think this goes back to Wilt and Russell, where it's really fascinating to think how those two against each other are interesting in this in this case. Sorry, yes, well, no, of course. I mean, that's why I wanted to actually start the series with this in mind, and I think they plug into larger theoretical ideas about what we measure with stats and how we look at success and things like that, but just in terms of the the historical narrative thread that you and I are talking about here and how it relates to, you know, a guy coming along like Luca, if Wilt has a few different bounces or a few different things go differently, uh, and he ends up as the guy with five or six championships and Russell, you know, doesn't have the success he has, he goes to a different team situation, um, he gets injured, whatever it may be, then I think we come out of that period thinking the way to play is like Wilt. The way to play is to score all these points and have this dominant guy. By the way, Wilt was a great defensive player. And of course, because of the last, they they didn't even have blocks and steals. They had no data on this. And it was just assumed that early in his career, wherever he he went, it was the scoring. Um, I do think there's a world where some guy comes along who's an incredible scorer and he doesn't play defense at all. I mean, this could be the Pete Maravich model in a way, but pretend he comes in 1962 instead of the 70s. And then he averages 45 points a game and his team wins like 15 games. Then you would get this emerging idea of like, you can't put, you ha- you can't be selfish in basketball. It won't work. Because that tension was there for Jordan as Magic and Bird were dominating with the egalitarian, we have to figure out how everyone fits together dominate the game without taking more than 12 shots so I think this tension has gone back and forth through history and now LeBron he I mean think about how criticized he was for not taking last second shots earlier in his career and he a a result of that cultural thing that you're talking about I think right yeah right and now he he swings it back a little bit the other way where he kind of has a little bit more magic in him that more of I'm going to make the right basketball play um, I've talked about him as like a computer out there. He's okay. If you're going to double me, I'm going to, I'm going to take the open shooter. And of course he's Luca's favorite player. Mm-hmm. And you get that age, you get that Kareem Wilt age gap where now Luca's coming in as LeBron's going out and Luca has that model. So maybe it swings back, but to something you said earlier, maybe it's more of this 
heliocentric. Maybe we're moving in the third dimension, right? It's not just the, the tension of team versus score and pass. It's like, I have to now be the, the captain of the ship. That's mm-hmm. the new thing. Give me, give me the ball and let me make all the decisions. The captain, but a sharing, a, a giving captain. Uh, yeah, and I, I think, um, yeah, that, God, that's all super fascinating. Sorry, that was really long. That no, was, no, it, it I got on a is. roll. It is. That's that's one of our typical like way meta way. <laughs> I I love it, but I think that it's interesting. I was going to say that um, it's interesting how it seems like some of the maddest factions of fans are the people who really fervently defend those people like like i was talking about marovich i can't even tell you and it's like i i love interacting with people please keep in throw whatever i i don't care keep talking to me say what you want i don't give a crap but it is interesting to me that uh i still have a you know a, a per, i have a manageable following i don't have a i don't have like millions of people watch my stuff so i can interact with people still i can handle the intake so but i do notice that you know, a, a, perce- a big percentage of it was Maravich people mad. And then you start thinking about like Harden people that get mad. You start thinking about uh, Iverson people that get really mad. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting mm-hmm. sort of grading. Keep uh, going. The, there's an interesting sort of grading against people who talk and think about basketball against uh, really broader narrative kind of stuff like that uh, of the the uh you know like we've talked about this Iverson's cultural and and, and impact on the game immense crazy um and i have respect for that but but it is uh i have observed that dynamic of um if you really get in there and you start thinking about it the way that we've been talking about in the last 20 minutes uh, that those are the things that get people the maddest you know like i you know utmost respect for kobe in his career but kobe's another guy kobe incites rage if you say if you say anything about like well you know could have shared more here or there uh and people get really angry and i, I think that the the generational i don't know if it's generational but uh philosophical uh grading is is very real there's a tension there's definitely a tension that exists there uh, <laughs> very true in 2020 yeah yeah and yeah i mean you can map that out to larger issues certainly that extend beyond basketball but i mean to a degree it, this that's probably happening when people look to a sport and something resonates with them it resonates with them for a reason and then the thing i've noticed of course uh, you started by saying i ruin everything for people um it's hard at that (laughs) point it's hard at and i do uh it's hard at that point to differentiate between hey here's this thing where i'm a general manager trying to figure out fit impact projection you know this the strengths and weaknesses on the court versus i love this guy I want him to um, live up to or reflect my feelings about him. And therefore, you see something where Iverson is kind of idolized by a lot of people for making the finals in 2001 as this hero's journey kind of thing, right? Even Even though they lost in the finals and got run over by a much better team. And so when you shift the landscape to the type of conversations that I often have, it's you get into stuff like well the eastern conference was East, eastern conference was really weak and philly won with defense and iverson's got all these skills and strengths but we have to look at it holistically and that just really 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 gets people mad and i think the challenge for people like me or maybe uniquely me i can't speak to other people is we're just talking about different things mm-hmm. and i think there's a struggle a natural tension that's going to occur when you try to talk about things in a way that seem to take that uh, gloss or shine off of someone's idol. But to me, I actually don't think it has to, uh, whether you like Wilt or Iverson or Kobe or Jordan or anyone. It's like, if, if you love Iverson for the 2001 finals run, that doesn't have to go away or be belittled in any way to say, well, an honest comparison with a guy like Kobe, um, I mean, I think, stacking them up it's night and day just in terms of skill set and accomplishment and all that but of course if you if you go there it it you're going to get backlash you're going to get angry pete maravich fans saying how can you kyle how can you even breathe the same name Lamelo ball how can you name a, a ball in the same sentence as pete maravich who um i mean i always i have to anger every fan base but i oh, I, I do man. think i do think pete maravich is 
the quintessential candidate for history's most overrated player. Woo-wee! There it is, folks. You heard it. There's your there's your breakout clip, Ben. Yeah. You heard it. I was trying first. to just slip that in Thank and you. then hoping you would move along. No way. I got to point that one out. That's a, that is a, just a uh, matzo ball hanging out there. I, uh, I was to go back to that. It's funny to me how much you and I agree on approach. <laughs> and this is, I'm not trying to give this guy too much credit, but that's why that graph made me laugh so hard. And I think I said this to you over text it was like, you were, you were the center. I was like, but it's true that like, we, we do agree on so much and talk. And I talked to you more than probably anybody about basketball, but our, our, you t- you're ex- talking about Twitter that, yeah, that, that the like, Twitter, yeah. the graph where somebody was talking about, you know, approaches to how they think about it and stuff, but the expression totally, yeah, would, would put, I, anyway, but <laughs> when you were just talking about that, it made me think about that, that we, that we would agree on that, but also differ and uh, how we communicate it. But, um, yeah, in terms of, uh, uh, magic and bird. Yeah, man. I mean, just, I don't know if I have any other points on them or not. All right. Get out of here. All right, man. Yeah. See you later. Thank you. Make sure you check out Kyle's work at the ringer YouTube channel, all kinds of great content and video that he puts out there on current players, upcoming draft prospects, and plenty of historical stuff as well you can support this podcast if you like this one at patreon.com slash thinking basketball you can sign up for all kinds of other perks over there as well including early access to the greatest peaks episodes we're running right now we are in the 90s but you get early access depending on what tier you sign up to uh, over at patreon.com slash thinking basketball thanks as always for listening to this one a huge thanks for all of your support in 2020. And of course, wherever you are listening, I hope that you are all having a great New Year's Day.